and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I am the second host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? Good. You're not the second host. You are co-host. Okay. All right. I'll You're take my co-pilot. It. You're not I'll take second it. in command. Yeah. I am, you know, major news, guys. I know I know everyone's talking about it, and it's probably you're 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 tired of hearing about it, and you're like, enough, Katie. I don't want to hear about this, but I have to say, I think we all know what I'm about to say, which is that historic moment, something huge happened on Tuesday, which was that justice was done and justice was restored. Democracy, a major step towards democracy was taken when Katie Halper's Twitter was restored. Mm, congratulations. It was hacked. Somebody took over your account. You couldn't get it back. I couldn't get back. It was hacked. They had mm. me responding to um, to crypto bro stuff. They even changed my Twitter name to Andrew Tate at one point. <laughs> and had Andrew Tate's faster. photo in my image. So I finally got it back. So I, I know that's why you guys all tuned in today to hear us, our take on that. That uh, question huge did step. your question did your mental health improve while you were locked out of your own Twitter? You know what's funny? Yeah. There have been times in my life where I've really been into Twitter too much. This is why I felt like it was not a good teachable moment because there have been times when I've been like addicted to Twitter and tweeting too much and not present for other people because I'm tweeting so much. But I haven't had that in a while. So it didn't even give me that like mental health break mm. or that teachable moment where it's like, you know, enjoy life. But what was interesting is that I was so upset. I really was so upset. I couldn't even I wasn't letting myself totally think about it because the idea of losing. And I know this sounds petty, but the idea of losing like one hundred and sixty thousand followers and all these years of tweeting and also DMs with people was really it was so frustrating because and the powerlessness about it. But then once I got it back even though I had been so upset before, it was kind of just like the status quo or return to the status quo. I felt like much of the media felt when they finally saw the uh, Donald Trump indictments. Mm. <laughs> Anticlimactic. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations on uh, winning your identity back. Thank you. Because without your own Twitter account, really, who are you? Who you am know? I? Well, I mean, yeah. I'm lucky. It could have been, they could have been tweeting t stuff all the time as opposed to just sure. slyly replying. I think that's yeah. their, their, their trick. These bastards, yeah. yeah. And as always, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com to support us and get bonus content, including the Thursday Throwdown, where we go over your midweek dose of media madness, all the crazy things that happen in the media after we do Monday morning, where we recap the Sunday morning news shows. That's usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. You also get extended interviews. So on this week, we talked to none other than Representative Rokana and Aaron, and he really go at it uh, during the Substack only or Locals only portion of the interview. So again, you'll, you won't want to miss that. It's at uh, usefulidiots.substack.com, usefulidiots.locals.com. And I got to say, I really enjoyed how respectful the debate was between Aaron and Ro. And I took part in it a little bit. I definitely played good cop. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our four basic food groups. I have Democrats suck. And check out this headline from the New York oh, Times. God. A requirement that kept people on Medicaid during the coronavirus pandemic has come to an end. And 15 million people, nearly half of which are black or Hispanic, could lose their coverage as a result. So this is now because... Congress and the Biden administration let this expire, these COVID-era protections, up to 15 million people could lose Medicaid. 
Um, now, probably not that many people will, but millions of people are at risk here of losing it. And that's because Congress didn't extend it. And the Biden administration chose not to fight for it. And there's been very little coverage of, of this in U.S. media. Uh, everyone's focused on this Trump indictment over falsifying right. some business records. Almost no attention being paid on cable news to millions of people losing their Medicaid benefits. Here's one rare exception from MSNBC. All kinds of issues facing people across our country, including the expiration next month of the COVID era expansion of Medicaid. 15 million people could lose coverage. It is horrible. And this is why we had a tri-caucus press conference to make people aware of it. Actually, many people don't even know that this terrible thing is going to happen. But one thing I want to say is that what the Tri-Caucus has done over 20 years is to fight for health care uh, equitability. So you hear that, what they did? <laughs> and, and these are Democrats here. They held a press conference to let people know that their Medicaid benefits are expiring. Did they fight for this in Congress? Did the Biden administration and these congressional leaders make this an issue? No, no. they let it expire. And that is something that a few people have pointed out. Here, for example, is an article in Jacobin Magazine by Bronco Marchetich, a former guest of Useful Idiots. This is what he writes. Joe Biden is shrinking the welfare state because the Biden administration refuses to make a public case for keeping alive the pandemic emergency declaration that led to a huge expansion of desperately needed programs like Medicaid. Millions are about to lose their health insurance. And here's another piece in Current Affairs, which points this out as well. The story is just that progressives didn't fight. A few brave policy experts did speak up, but there was no real organized campaign. Progressive lawmakers didn't send out a flood of tweets, speeches, and op-eds. They didn't even threaten to vote no and then cave. They made no noise. The big progressive advocacy groups didn't run campaigns. Even Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the only Democrat to vote no, didn't discuss the Medicaid and SNAP cuts at all in her statement on her no vote. Instead, she focused on the bill's harsh immigration enforcement component. So this is a case of Democrats suck because, yes, Republicans certainly were pushing of to course. cut these expanded Medicaid benefits. But Democrats, including progressives, didn't do anything to defend them. That is pathetic. Adam Johnson also at his Substack, The Column, he's a great media critic. He points out that none of the Sunday morning news shows that we, of course, cover uh, brought this up. I was actually surprised that MSNBC brought it up at all. I'm, I was shocked. My standards for them are so low that their mere mentioning of it made it seem like they're actually doing something. And then I realized it's absolutely pathetic. They're not doing anything. They're just mentioning something that should be a huge story. They're dedicating like a minute to it. But this is a great example. In fact, um, my show on the Katie Halper show this week, I refused to talk about the Trump indictment because I stream on Tuesday nights. What I did is I did a show on East Palestine because that's something where people are actually suffering. I did on East Palestine and also the question of how that could be an opportunity for Medicare for all for the people of East Palestine based on this interesting precedent with Libby, precisely because unlike the issue of 15 million people potentially losing health care, that gets no media attention. And this is something that actually affects people's lives as opposed to the Trump indictment, which has no effect on people's lives, no matter what you think of it. And that's where all the media was this week. Absolutely. And meanwhile, what is the Biden administration really putting its political weight behind? It's more money for the Ukraine proxy war. So here's a new headline from the Kiev Independent. This is what it says. 
So check out this side by side. Kiev Independent Pentagon announces a new security assistance package for Ukraine worth $2.6 billion on April 4th. At the same time, we get headlines like this. Millions on Medicaid may soon lose coverage as pandemic protections expire. So those are Democratic Party priorities. And that's why Democrats suck. And that is indeed why Democrats suck. Also worth noting that one of the things that happened under COVID is that people's uninsurance levels went down. People became more insured precisely because of things like these. But, you know, everyone made fun of Donald Trump when he said that COVID was going to be over by Easter. Remember when that happened? But Biden doesn't hasn't presented any criteria for what determines whether it's over and whether these reliefs should be over. Democrats yeah. do indeed suck. And what the hell? Why? Where are all the Democrats? Why don't they talk about this? As Nate, as the current affairs, the current affairs article pointed out, this is something that people could get upset about. Like, it's good. I'm glad that AOC is talking about immigration. But why don't you also talk about something that applies to everyone? Maybe if all these Medicaid recipients falsified business records, maybe we get people to care yeah, about seriously. it. Seriously. Yeah. 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 That would get them thrown off. Yeah. For Republicans suck, let's go to a really heartwarming story from Democracy Now! In Tennessee, thousands of students in Nashville walked out of their classrooms Monday and marched to the state capitol demanding lawmakers pass gun control legislation, including a ban on assault weapons. The action came one week after a shooter killed three adults and three nine-year-old students at a private Christian elementary school in Nashville. Meanwhile, Tennessee Republican leaders have removed three Democratic lawmakers from their committee assignments for participating in peaceful protests following the mass shooting. On Monday, large crowds of protesters in the gallery of the Tennessee House of Representatives erupted in chants of fascists as members of the Republican supermajority moved to permanently expel Democratic representatives Justin Jones of Nashville, Gloria Johnson of Knoxville, and Justin Pearson of Memphis. This is Representative Justin Jones. Each of us represents 78,000 people, and our people are being silenced because they're kicking us off committees. They're threatening to take a vote to expel us today. Um, our member ID badges have been shut off. Um, our, our representative ID badges have been shut off. Um, and this is not what democracy looks like. You know, we are elected to serve our constituents, and um, I'm the youngest Democratic lawmaker here uh, in the most diverse district, and by shutting me down, they're shutting down the, the voice of my constituents. So that was because they engaged in a protest. These three Democrats, their mistake was that they engaged in a protest lamenting the gun culture that runs our country, basically, and that results in so many of these uh, mass shootings. They were punished for a protest. Basically, you can't exercise your First Amendment rights if that means criticizing something that could be deemed to infringe on the Second Amendment, although... It Again, doesn't. the Second Amendment, the second, the second Amendment, you know, everyone forgets what it actually says, which is about a well-regulated militia. Right. You know, um, but anyway, that's all our story. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, some rights, are, I guess, are, are better than others. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The Second, one, second Amendment tri- trumps all other ones, even yeah. though, as you pointed out, it's not even challenged by the things that people are calling for. Yeah. Yeah. All right. For, isn't that weird? This is the weirdest concession speech I've ever seen. Uh, This happened in Wisconsin. Former state court justice Daniel Kelly conceding to his opponent, Justice-elect Janet Protasiewicz. I can't say her last name. Janet Protasiewicz. Sorry, I'm mispronouncing. Anyway, 
check out how Daniel Kelly responds to losing in this Wisconsin vote for the state court. And it brings me no joy to say this. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. This was the most deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. It was truly beneath contempt. Now I say this not because we did not prevail. I do not say this because of the rancid slanders that were launched against me, although that was bad enough. But that is not my concern. My concern is the damage done to the institution of the court. My opponent is a serial liar. She's disregarded judicial ethics. She's demeaned the judiciary with her behavior. And this is the future that we have to look forward to in Wisconsin. We've had this laid out plainly for us. We could have the rule of law or the rule of Janet. And the people of Wisconsin have chosen the rule of Janet. I'm so her first name is Janet. So he's yeah. saying that people voted for the rule of Janet. I like the rule of Janet. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'd be I'm, willing I'm, to experiment under the rule of Janet. That sounds, that sounds cool to me. Yeah. I'm a Janetinian. I'm a Janetinian. <laughs> yeah. This guy is uh he, I, what I like about him is he kind of, he has like the normal politician affect in his speaking, but he says kind of Trumpian things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he says it as if they're serious, <laughs> but he's just talking a bunch of shit. That's all he's doing. He's just not doing it in a Trumpian way. I kind of like it. It's kind of like a mixed genre approach. But this guy, by the way, uh, you know, he called Obama's uh, re-election in 2012. What's that? He said it was a win for the socialism, same-sex marriage, recreational marijuana tax increase crowd. Wow. He's also compared uh, Social Security to slavery. Mm. Mm. Well... Yeah, I mean that's that's an amazing speech, and my favorite part is was when he was like, um, "I'm not saying this because of the rancid attacks on me. I'm not bitter about that. What's so it's not about me. I'm it's concerned not because we didn't. Cons- it's not because we didn't prevail. Yeah, it's not because I lost. He's <laughs> like, I'm not being a. This isn't about being a sore loser or anything. Yeah, you think about the protest too much. Yeah. Well, I'll hail the rule of Janet and the reactions it elicits. Uh, if, if this is the norm under the rule of Janet, I say bring it on. Yeah, bring Sounds it on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mazel tov, Janet. Yeah. Um, so for Isn't That Terrible, we have a, a scary tale. Trigger warning. We see some potential violence in this clip. So let's take a look at the at this article and this video. <laughs> so for those of you who are just listening, this is a video of an adorable, uh, uh, an absolutely adorable doggy. Um an English bulldog named Fendi, and uh, he's he's cute, all right. She, sorry, she's cute, all right. Except what's scary is if if you're not watching, she has a knife in her jaws. She's adorable, but she has a knife that she's clutching on, and uh, it's a very scary thing. I don't know what I would do if I had an adorable dog uh, with a knife in its mouth. <laughs> 
because what's scary is how cute it is because it's really disarming. Like if Bodie, my parents' dog, had a, a knife in her mouth, I, I wouldn't be sufficiently scared because she's so cute, just like Fendi is. So that's what makes it kind of terrible. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's yeah, a terrible, absolutely. terribly yeah. cute thing that could mm. lead to terrible violence. But luckily, she dropped a knife. I don't know what made her pick up the knife in the first place. Aaron, you probably have some insights into this, having had a, your parents having had a sociopathic violent cat, uh, RIP Lucy. But uh, Lucy didn't even need a, a a weapon to harm people. I mean, she she was a weapon. She was uh, a weapon, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, this is not a good, you know, variation on doggy toys. Introducing the knife as, right. as a doggy toy. No, no, don't, don't do it. I don't. I mean, to be fair, I don't think you're you're right. Actually, that's a good point. Well, you're right. I've been doggy blaming. I was pup blaming. I didn't even look at the human role in this. How did the knife get there in the first place? You're right. They left it not that they probably dropped the knife. We all want to expand culture and experiment with new things, but having doggy toys uh, experiment with, with knives. No, no. Cool. Yeah. We don't want that. So unless anyone watch that and think that that's a good idea for a new toy, that's not the idea. The idea is, isn't that terrible? That serial slasher. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool. But she's so cute and cuddly. And those were your four basic food groups. We are so excited to be talking to Representative Ro Khanna. He is a Democrat, member of Congress, who represents California's District 17. He's also a deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So let's go talk to Ro. Welcome back to Useful Idiots. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, wanted to start off by asking you to talk about the Derail Act. And also, if you could contrast the way the government has responded to the East Palestine crisis to the way it responded to the um, SVB crisis. One of the things in this country that's frustrating is places that are smaller, that don't have as much economic influence, often don't get the government services that they need. And that was the case in East Palestine, where the response was way too slow. People didn't show up. Uh, you know, where there was a cavalier attitude. Okay, we have a thousand train derailments every year, and no one is thinking, well, that's unacceptable. How do we get that number down? Uh, and I think a lot of the anger and frustration in East Palestine was justified. Uh, I'm glad now, finally, people are paying attention. Uh, I'm proud with Rep. Deluzio to basically offer a bill that codifies what the National Transportation Board recommended back in 2015. Uh, and that is that uh, we, we need to have uh, materials that are hazardous, properly classified. There should be some restrictions on the length on these trains. There should be some requirements of the staffing. And I just give credit to independent media. I mean, David Sirota at The Lever really broke this story and uh, helped get people to notice. You recently met with Starbucks workers. What did you learn from them? Uh, what has Starbucks been doing that's breaking the law? Also, uh, there was a very uh, viral, some very viral exchanges between Senator Bernie Sanders and CEO Howard Schultz. But what is being done about this and what are you doing about it? I was one of the first uh, members to meet with the Starbucks organizers when they just started their union campaign. I'm so proud of what they've achieved, over 250 stores that have unionized at great risk. And I was uh, in Los Angeles uh, a couple of days ago meeting with them. 
uh, with some of the lead organizers and, and heartbreaking stories, how people's hours are being cut so that they're being denied healthcare benefits, how their schedules are being uh, messed with, how their staff in union shops are being reduced. So people actually are having backbreaking hours and actually it's hurting the community as there are long lines, given that the staff is being cut. In some cases, how the people are being fired and retaliated against. And if you have one or two of these incidents, you may say, okay, is there a misunderstanding? Was there a bad manager? But when you have hundreds of these complaints, you know that this is coming from the top and it needs to stop. I led a letter um, a month ago uh, with 30 of my colleagues to Howard Schultz calling on him to stop. I uh, have uh, encouraged the hearings and was so proud of Senator Sanders for doing that. Uh, and we're going to continue to put uh, to make Starbucks know that they're being watched and that they have to follow the law. Congress member, uh, I want to ask you about what's happening in Syria. About a month ago, you joined other members of the Progressive Caucus and some uh, some Republicans in voting for an immediate U.S. military withdrawal. But a majority of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, didn't agree with you. That was voted down. And then shortly after that, a few weeks later, you have this um, incident where U.S. forces come under attack. A U.S. A contractor was killed. Uh, at least six U.S. service members were wounded with traumatic brain injuries. I'm wondering, you know, when violent incidents like this happen, uh, does that help shift momentum your way in terms of calling for a, a withdrawal? And do you see uh, momentum building inside Congress for more of these, you know, left-right coalitions that, like the one you joined in to call for a withdrawal from places like Syria? I think there's a substantive issue and there's the procedural issue. On a procedural matter. Uh, I don't see how people are voting against the War Powers Resolution. The reality is that there is simply no uh, authorization from Congress uh, to have our troops in Syria in, in, in conflict. And a lot of people get up and make the argument, well, they think the troops should be there and they think the troops should be there uh, to protect the Kurds. And I'm sympathetic to the Kurds. But if you want to make that case, you have to make that case to the American people and you have to have authorization. There is no authorization. Have the courage of your convictions that you can convince the Congress to vote for the authorization. Uh, when we have needed authorization, it's not like the Congress is slow to react. Or we often give authorization uh, too, for too long and too easily. Uh, so on that issue, uh, I, I think the opposition is uh, just doesn't have a strong leg to stand on. On the substance of it, many of us believe that uh, ISIS has been defeated in terms of their goal of keeping, uh, of getting uh, territorial control, uh, and that it's time now to to, to, to remove uh, the troops that were there. And there are other ways of uh, making sure that the Kurds are protected, both through uh, potential assistance to the Kurds and also uh, through uh, insistence uh, through tough diplomacy with Turkey. Uh, so. Uh, I, I believe the coalition is building, but it's slower. And staying on Syria, there was recently a vote in Congress. Uh, it was non-binding. It was a non-binding measure. It was so symbolic. But it, it was a vote to affirm support for U.S. sanctions on Syria, even after the devastating earthquake. Uh, only two members of Congress voted against it. And these sanctions um, have been called suffocating by the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Sanctions, Elena Dohan. And I'm wondering, especially in the aftermath of a devastating earthquake, I know the Biden administration has issued some temporary waivers on these sanctions, but why not lift these sanctions permanently when we know that sanctions just hurt civilians? And what gives us the right to impose sanctions 
that take away food and medicine from children, whether it's in Syria or anywhere else? And, and would you specifically be willing to revisit uh, your support for sanctions on Syria? I have supported sanctions on uh, on a regime that has committed gross human rights violations that has really led to the expulsion of uh, millions of their own citizens, uh, that has uh, committed human rights abuses against children uh, and and engaged in uh, in killing of their own civilians. Now, I believe there has to be uh, exceptions for food and medicine. Uh, and humanitarian exceptions. And I would want to make sure that there was humanitarian exceptions to get relief for the earthquake, which in my understanding, the administration has done. But I support sanctions on a, on a regime that I think has been uh, quite brutal over the last decades, frankly. I mean, even uh, Assad's father was brutal in the expulsions that he had from Syria. Okay, two questions then. You're... Not to get into a debate about the Syrian war, but you're aware that the U.S. spent billions of dollars funding militias inside, arming militias inside Syria, which helped fuel a catastrophic dirty war. I mean, you're aware of that fact that the U.S. spent billions of dollars fighting a regime change war in Syria, right? Well, I put the blame on Assad. I mean, I, I think and uh, Assad is the one who was uh, committing atrocities for his own people, in some cases, the forced expulsion in other cases, uh, violence against his own people. Now, I uh, agree that the United States uh, uh, went in and uh, was trying to, to fight uh, ISIS, was trying to fight terrorism. Uh, but, you're aware, but you're aware, Congressman, that, that Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton privately, this is according to WikiLeaks, that al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. So we weren't fighting terrorism in Syria. We actually were arming an insurgency that was dominated by al-Qaeda. And that was admitted not just by Jake Sullivan, but also by the Defense Intelligence Agency. So what I'm saying is, let's even put that aside. The, these sanctions do not hurt the government. Bashar al-Assad and his friends are doing fine. These sanctions hurt civilians, uh, as the UN Special Rapporteur has recognized. As James Jeffrey, the former top envoy under Trump, uh, said about U.S. sanctions, they said that they've crushed Syria's economy. So given that our sanctions are crushing Syria's economy... How can we say they're against the government when they're really when you crush an economy, it's the, it's the civilians who get hurt. So accordingly, why not revisit that? Well, what I'm open to is looking at humanitarian food, medicine, uh, relief uh, in cases where uh, sanctions shouldn't be hurting the people. Uh, but I believe sanctions are appropriate when you have uh, criminal action, human right, gross human rights uh, violations by a regime uh, like Assad. Now, I, I think that uh, the United States has to be prudent in not giving people false hope when saying that, that somehow we're going to effectuate regime change when we're not willing to go uh, and engage in a, a bloody war there. Uh, but the, the guilt, the moral guilt is clearly, in my view, with Assad. Can I just ask a question, though? So is this for, for you, then, sanctions are like a moral expression or do they actually have an impact that you think is a net positive for the people of Syria or wherever whichever country we're talking about? I, I, I think that there is a need to have uh, repercussions when people have, commit uh, gross human rights violations and abuse to deter that. I mean, you, there has to be some consequence to leaders and uh, they're not going to be tried at the International Criminal Court because they're in charge and having sanctions is one way uh, to do that. Just like I support sanctions on Putin, uh, just like I support sanctions on the officials who 
uh, were responsible for the Uyghurs, just like I've supported sanctions uh, uh, in, in in other cases where there are gross human rights violations. But I have said that there always needs to be those t- sanctions need to be targeted, uh, and there needs to be exceptions uh, for civilians, and where civilians are really uh, being affected with food and medicine and some of the basics. Would you support sanctions on the U.S. for occupying one third of Syria and stealing its uh, oil and wheat, as is U.S. policy? Trump admitted that we're in, in Syria to steal the oil, or or su- imposing sanctions on the U.S. for arming militias inside Syria that committed atrocities? No, I, I don't, because I don't think that the United States' role there uh, was uh, imperial. I think that the United States was there uh, in trying to defend against ISIS. Now. Whether there were alliances with Al Qaeda, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I. But the point is that you have two different threats. You have the Al Qaeda threat. You have the ISIS threat. We didn't want to caliphate in uh, in Syria. Uh, no one would uh, support the, the United States forced, or no one on I think on the Democratic side would want the United States to be going and taking uh, oil fields. And I would not not support that. Well, that's what we're doing. Uh, you know, Trump admitted that. Dana Struhl, who's a top official in the Pentagon, she's admitted that. And on ISIS, look, I, the problem with Syria is you can get into these long rabbit holes, and, and you're not here for that. And I want to respect that. But, you know, John Kerry said that when it comes to ISIS, we sat back and watched as they were growing. And we were hoping to use ISIS's growth as leverage to force out Assad. Uh, so basically, that was the U.S. attitude toward ISIS for a very long time. And now the U.S. is barely fighting ISIS at all. It's there, as Trump said, to take the oil. So According to your standards of applying sanctions, why not apply sanctions on the government that is there to take Syria's oil? Well, first of all, I think the United States under Obama's leadership uh, helped defeat ISIS uh, in getting the terror. After it watched them grow. Yes. Yes, sure. So I think that that is a credit to to our military there. I mean, whether we watched them grow for too long, I mean, that, that depends on. The facts. I, mean, I don't. I don't have enough knowledge to know the, all of the details. But I will say that I supported the pre- President Obama's efforts to, to 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 then make sure that they were denied territory. And I stand by the view that the United States. I don't think I, I know under President Obama they, there was never any directive given uh, that uh, they should be taking oil fields. I mean, if if, if Trump said that, then uh, there are many things Trump has said that. Uh, are extra constitutional and that I disagree with. But uh, it, it certainly wasn't Obama's policy to go appropriate oil fields. It was to defeat uh, ISIS. Okay. Uh, you were one of the, we're going to uh, put Syria to the side and, and thank you for your, for your answers on that. Um, you were one of the early members of Congress to call for diplomacy inside Ukraine. Well, even before the, the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus came out in support of, of diplomacy, we had that controversy where 24 hours after that letter came out from the Progressive Caucus, which you signed, call, urging the Biden administration to engage in diplomacy, the letter was withdrawn. You were one of the few to actually stand by the letter. But now we're several months later, and there's still no movement, at least that we can see publicly, on ending this war in Ukraine. Um, where do you stand on this now? Do you think the Biden administration should be using its considerable leverage in this horrible war to try to end it? I believe that uh, Secretary Blinken uh, is uh, having lines of communication open with uh, uh, with Lazarov. I mean, both uh, they met in India briefly. They, they've communicated recently over the the, the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, prisoner uh, and uh, calling for his release. I, I don't think China has the moral credibility to be uh, the peacemaker here, given that they're still unwilling to 
condemn uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, given that Xi Jinping has described Putin as his closest friend and closest ally. Uh, so, you know, it's going to take some neutral uh, parties to, to actually help uh, bring about a just peace that recognizes Ukrainian sovereignty. But I, I give the president and Secretary Blinken credit in that they have not wanted to escalate the war. Uh, they have tried to deconflict it. Uh, they have resisted calls to uh, have some, any kind of aggression into uh, Russia. Uh, and what they want is a just peace, which is that Ukraine's sovereignty is protected uh, and, and Russia recognizes that. Have you seen the reports? Uh, they're sourced to Naftali Bennett, the former Zoli, uh, for, uh, prime minister, uh, a Turkish foreign minister, and also sources close to Zelensky in the Ukrainian media, that the U.S. and the U.K. basically told Zelensky early on in the war, after he reached an agreement, a tentative agreement with Russia, that, sorry, if you if you make an agreement, we're not going to back you up with security guarantees, meaning that the U.S. and U.K. blocked peace and prolonged the war. H- have you seen these reports? Do they concern you at all? Has there been any e- effort in Congress to find out what happened there? I would find those very hard to believe. Uh, I I can't speak for what Boris Johnson was doing, but I'll tell you for the people I've talked to in the United States, uh, uh, foreign policy apparatus and military apparatus, they see our pair challenge to be China and they see uh, the war actually uh, to be a huge use of uh, our resources, one that is just and, and, and needs to happen, but one that is distracting us uh, from uh, really focusing on Asia. So I, I don't think that there would be anyone uh, in the Biden administration uh, who would have in any way uh, wanted uh, this outcome. Now, uh, there, th- what the principle is that the Ukraine should have its sovereignty, uh, that Russia shouldn't be able to just go in and uh, get some territory out of a unjustified uh, war. But we've heard Biden administration officials say, I mean, uh, the uh, Pentagon chief, Austin, said the goal is to weaken Russia. Jake Sullivan said the goal is to hand Russia a strategic defeat. So from their point of view, at least publicly, this isn't just about uh, defending Ukraine's sovereignty. This also is about using Ukraine to, in Austin's words, weaken Russia or even in Joe Biden's words to, you know, oust Putin, because Biden said early on that this man referring to Putin cannot remain in power. So. I mean, don't you think that that's at least part of the goal here is to use this war to hand Russia a defeat by bleeding it? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was really, really fun and interesting. And uh, it's not every day that you get to talk to a politician who will tolerate hard questions and disagreements. I mean, I really meant it. There's just no progressive lawmakers I can think of except for Rokana who will actually take tough questions from progressive media. Uh, right. The only outlets they seem to talk to are friendly ones. And so I really appreciate Rokana for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, you saw there a lot of disagreement. But, hey, you know, that's what it's all about. And, and if uh, you didn't see a lot of disagreement, uh, you saw some disagreement, but if you want to see the full disagreement, make sure you go to uh, usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. Yes. And um, it's so funny how when you have to discuss all these issues like Ukraine or Syria, you need time because if you accept 
the conventional narrative we get, this was an unprovoked invasion, uh, Putin wants to conquer all of Ukraine. Well, sure, there's not much to discuss, but right. if you actually want to take these issues seriously, you have to go into a bit of historical context and look at the evidence that's out there. And when you do that, you go down these little rabbit holes, but it's necessary to have, I think, a constructive yeah. conversation. Well, yeah, it's necessary to have a constructive conversation. It's also necessary to pursue the policy that makes sense, right? I mean, if yeah. you think that someone is a total irrational monster that's going to you're going to deal with them differently yeah um from if you think that they have some whether or not they're uh you sympathize with them there there are rational demands that you can disagree with but they're not i'm going to kill everyone who speaks a certain language practices a certain religion and create a uh a racially pure people for example Mm. yeah well um it'd be great if we could interview every member of congress uh yeah Let's go um, for Adam Schiff next. You Adam. Know, hi. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, Adam. He's also on. from California. He's probably near Rose District. Well, we uh, did she- have on Rashida Tlaib, by the way, and maybe we can have her back on because she's been doing some good stuff for Julian Assange. That's right. Uh, her and Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> I want, maybe they can come on together. I doubt that. I somehow doubt you that. You don't think that's it. how we're going to get them? Yeah, I, I doubt it. Yeah, but yeah, we can try. Yeah. We can try. All right, everyone, uh, go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com to get bonus content and support us. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod. And use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 